This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 67 of Talking Dirty. Over at his Ruston Old Vicarage, looking ever so cheerful in his yellow this sunny November day, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. And imitating a canary, of course. Yeah. Over, <laughs> over in sunny Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsson. And you've got uh, something strappy going on there this morning. Dungarees. Dungarees. Dungarees, darling. And a shirt that looks a little bit like it's been stolen from the upholstery of a caravan. I'm very happy with that. More of that, in my, more of that in my wardrobe, the better. Looking very coordinated on the video version of this pod podcast, not only her attire, but also coordinating with the beautiful wall behind her. We have the wonderful journalist, designer, author of every kind of book imaginable on hydrangeas, dahlias, snowdrops, lilies. It is Naomi Slade. But before we get into the gardening, Naomi, do you have any middle names to share? I do. It's Catherine with a K. Oh, with Naomi a K. Catherine Slade. <laughs> you do sound quite formidable, Naomi Catherine Slade. I do my best. I think, <laughs> I think it sounds like a film star, very posh film star. Well, thank you. Thank you. We'll work on that, shall we? Yes. yes. Third or fourth career. We bumped into you on Main Avenue at Chelsea, which was lovely. It was wonderful to actually clap eyes on people who generally, I mean, I only get to follow you on social media and sort of see your various exploits, which normally involves some fabulous book being launched that is just everything you kind of want in a book, beautiful and big and bold. And I think you have quite a lot of them by you that you can demonstrate with. I do. Like I said, it's going to be a little bit like Bob Dylan or kind of the very sweet sort of like creepy scene in love, actually. So we have Snowdrops. There we are. Snowdrops. There's An Orchard Odyssey, which is a real labour of love. And it's about how you can have orchard even if you haven't got a garden. And then we have the flower books. There's hydrangeas. <laughs> and then there's lilies, which was out this oh. year. Um, and then we have dahlias. Oh, so, uh, yes, it's pretty splendid. You can get them all signed from my website, namieslade.com forward slash shop, just for the avoidance of that. And um, didn't you have some quite good family assistance in getting all of that sorted out? You've like tasked all of your family members with different jobs when it comes to your website and your various aspects of your career. Yes, I don't like to see people idle, you see. Um, <laughs> So, you know, when, when lockdown happened, I got my daughter to organise me a, a web shop and tidy up my website um, and there forever taking my photograph or posing, you know, with, I just hold this darling and I want this stuff. Um, so, yes, uh, you don't stand around here for very long without becoming kind of vict victim of journalism. I love it. Now, Alan, I, I'm sure you've got all of Naomi's books. I think you've brought one of them for your kind of show and tell today. Well, I have. I've got, I've, got, I've got the book on lilies here, you see, which is the latest one. Um, and I've got the book on snowdrops and I've got an orchard odyssey. And <laughs> I've got dahlias. That's very nice to hear. <laughs> well, of course it is, because I met you years ago yes. um, at, at a GMG lunch, I think it was. We it? did, yes. We had a lovely lunch. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
the thing that puzzles me about the books that you've written is how on earth you cope with such a vast range of subjects. I mean, you can't write about every lily, you can't write about every daily, you can't write about every snowdrop. How do you whittle them down to be, I mean, is it personal choice or is it another reason? There's a strong element of personal choice, certainly, um, because I know what I like. Um, But also there is, um, they have to be available in large part in where we're going to be selling the book. So because there's no point in telling somebody about something absolutely amazing if they can't actually get it. And then there is basically, if they're cool, they're interesting, they're easy to grow, they're completely bonkers, and they've got an epic backstory. Um, so basically, it's supposed to be a sort of a rollicking read, lots and lots of things to uh, to look at and think about. And yeah, it, it's supposed to be practical and entertaining and informative if you want to do it, and lovely to look at. And that is basically... Much like Naomi Say. <laughs> <laughs> The Snowdrop book, uh, just to go back to Snowdrops, um, I, I, does it feature your own Snowdrop? It doesn't because I wasn't actually, um, I wasn't immortalised prior to uh, for that book. So very much my, my own Snowdrop, which I have here, in fact. I did hope you'd be able to bring it in some, <laughs> some shape. I have here. Now, it looks like a sorry sort of character at the moment, but it arose because of the Snowdrop book. So um, I was talking to Joe Sharman, uh, who lives over in Cambridgeshire, and is a very much a Mr. Snowdrop. And he was very helpful. And he read it through and made sure that I hadn't made any monumental boobies. And um, you've got to be careful about those things. <laughs> and then a little while later, he got in touch and he's like, oh, would, would you like to have Snowdrop named after you? I was like, would I? <laughs> um, and a little while later, I said, well, one, one specification, two specifications. One, it has to be identifiable you know, amongst all the other snowdrops, I want to be able to spot mine in a lineup. And secondly, um, it needed to be easy to grow because killing your own plant is uh, not cool. So um, and a little while later in the post, three beautiful little snowdrops turned up. And here it is. It doesn't look very impressive. And if you start watering it in August, it'll fl- flower um, in mid-September. So that's a Regina Olgay variety. It is. That's right. Yeah. Galanthus Regina Olgay, Naomi Slade. Yeah, lovely. As I said, it's a little past its best at the moment. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, saying to myself, is it a late snowdrop or is it a very early snowdrop? <laughs> well, this is a very good question. Um, because I have also a rather more early snowdrop. <laughs> so I've been potting them up. I haven't finished, but uh, I've been potting them up and keeping an eye out for them. And some of the early ones are starting to come already. I mean, we're only, what, November, aren't we? Um, yeah. And I am urban, so it's warm. But uh, Galanthus Farrington double tends to show up on a regular basis early. So when did your sort of love of snowdrops start? Because it does tend to creep up on people, the, the kind of galanthophilia. I've always liked them. I've always, always liked them. When I was, I wasn't even 10, I had a rabbit called Snowdrop. Um, but also I've known that there were sort of different sorts of snowdrops for a really, really long time because I was brought up at least partially in Wales and there was a whole swathe of snowdrops in the orchard. But the ones that, that, the ones, uh, that were at the end of the garden were always up by the 14th of February. Um, so I used to sneak out on, like, in my wellies and my pyjamas and get a little bunch of these uh, snowdrops for my mother's Valentine's present. I can remember where I grew up, there was acres and acres and acres of snowdrops. I mean, we were in South Norfolk, which is really rather 
damp and quite wooded in lots of places. And I think thanks to our Victorian forebears who'd planted the original clumps or whatever of snowdrops. I mean, snowdrops and aconites are just self-seeded everywhere. And it's just like a, a huge carpet of them. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, doubles and singles and, you know, sparkled with bright yellow aconites. It's absolutely fantastic. But I wasn't aware at that time of the, um, I mean, to me, a snowdrop was a snowdrop. It's either double or single. That's all it was. As simple as that. And then it wasn't until my leg <laughs> that I suddenly <laughs> decided that there's something more to be said for some of these snowdrops. Um, and I mean, we've got, we've got about four varieties out in the garden at the moment. Um, I can't tell you what they all are, except that they're all Regine Olge um, varieties. But, but um, you know, it becomes this kind of thing that creeps up on you because you talk to another gardener and they say, well, you must have some of mine, have some of these. And they, you know, give you a forkful or, you know, a little bundle wrapped up in a piece of newspaper or something like that. And, you know, they just join the others. And so we've got between, it's, a, it's an incongruous planting because it's, they're all growing between agaves. <laughs> you don't expect that do you no <laughs> um and so these dear little things i mean they tend to be my my autumn flowering snowdrops tend to be quite short um, they're not long stemmed snowdrops they're all quite short but some of them have enormous flowers on and that is incongruous in itself as well because you know you get that scale is wrong somehow or other but they're very welcome nonetheless well, my, mine is mine is very tall and, and, and it's very early so it's a, well, certainly in my collection, it's unmissable. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't planted yours alongside any agaves then? Uh, no, no, I don't have agaves, actually. <laughs> I noticed that on your, book, on your book on dahlias, you have one of my favourites, I think, on the cover called Chimborazo. Yes, that's very good. It's yeah. the tallest mountain in the world, if you start from, the, from, from the, the Earth's crust. Yes, but I just love that. I mean, that's, I, don't know, I don't know what's happened to it. Because um, apart from a few nurseries that do their own propagation, there are very few that actually um, stock Chimborazo today. I mean, we do our own propagation. We've got five big pots of it. And I sort of hoik the tubers out and we start them very early on heat to take cuttings for, so that other people might have it. Also very civilised of you. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, you often find, don't you, that you are, uh, you, I mean, this again is a problem with the books because you get, a whole load of varieties that are interesting, fun and historic and, and, and modern and contemporary. Um, but things rise and fall out of favour all the yeah, time. And there's a real pressure from, from commercial growers and for, um, you know, for retails on the retail side to bring in new yeah. varieties all the time, which are supposed to be bigger well, and more epic. Well, I can tell you this is exactly what happened because a nurseryman um, that I'm acquainted with tried to sell me instead of Chimborazo, which he couldn't, he tried to sell me something called Night Butterfly, which is a similar colorette variety, but the, the sort of petaloid filaments in the middle, instead of being yellow, they are creamy white, really. And he said, this is equally as good. I can't remember the excuse he gave for not having Chimborazo, but he made something up, which is an absolute load of rot. <laughs> um, but, so we grow Night Butterfly, but Night Butterfly is the most floppy thing. It is not Chimborazo. And Chimborazo He's very upright. I'm going to call him he because he's a bit butch. He's very upright to about five feet if he's grown well. And he stands very nicely. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I don't know whether it's um, it's a fascinating thing. Isn't it? I never know whether it's the nurserymen or who it is that sort of points the favour in certain directions, if you see what I mean. 
That's a really interesting thing, because one of the things that I'm discovering um, with, my, with my flower books particularly, I mean, snowdrops isn't, isn't quite the same because you want one snowdrop, then you want two snowdrops, then you want 10 snowdrops, then you want 30 snowdrops, then you want 500 snowdrops. You know, there is no kind of thing, I'm bored of that one now, I'm going to move on to this next one. It's like, I want that one too. But with things like um, lilies and hydrangeas, you find particularly... And also with the next one, which I'm not allowed to tell you about till after Christmas, but the next in the series, is that areas where there's been a lot of breeding, like um, France and America um, for hydrangeas, there's a, a huge passion for them, um, far, far greater than there is in the UK. And you, know, you can see people go, oh, yes, this is cool, this is lovely. I didn't like it when my grandma had one, but uh, you know, this, I like this one. But there's uh, so, so much breeding and so much evolution and so much this one is smaller with bigger flowers and more uprightness. And everything gets superseded all the time. And they're designed to market all the way mm. around the world. And I think to a certain degree, there's only much, so much shelf space. Yes, I think you're probably right. There's a wonderful garden in northern France called Le Moutier, which is a lovely arts and crafts house, but it's bang full of snowdrops. I mean, the French do, and uh, not snowdrops, hydrangeas. The mm. French do love their hydrangeas, which they I really think they call Hortensia, don't they? Hortensia, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I've got some serious travelling to do in France when we're over the current hiccup and uh, a lot of other places as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just to, to go back, sort of pre-books, right back to early Naomi, you obviously had an affinity for plants. You called your bunny snowdrop. You were out there picking flowers when you were very little. Did you start gardening when you were very small or did gardening start later? No, gardening was absolutely from the outset. You know, I was always there with, I mean, I've got quite a strong gardening family. I'm the only person who's taken it any degree of prof professional. You know, I think they think the obsession's got out of hand. Uh, they may be right. But um, no, my, my uncle was gardening and my grandmother was one of those terrible old ladies who go along with a large handbag of pair of secateurs every time she went round a garden um, as a result we had quite a lot of like fun exciting things you know we'd go down to Wales and there'd be lots of wildflowers and really cool caterpillars and things um, there's this lovely picture of me aged I don't know three or four planting radish seeds with my favourite uncle and I just remember I remember this I remember very clearly and um Mostly because you know, very, very shortly afterwards, there were actual radishes. I mean, how <laughs> yeah. completely cool is that? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I've always been into it. I wanted to be when I was little. I wanted to be Gerald Dorrell or David Attenborough to present tomorrow's world, perhaps. But fundamentally, I've always been a biologist and a naturalist, and that's what I studied, sort of environment and biology. Then I got sort of grabbed by, by the plant world. I felt very much that, I cho that it chose me rather than I chose it. How did you start with your first book, Naomi? How did I start with my first book? Yeah. Well, my first book's actually my second book. So I did, I did, I sort of contributed to a few, a few originally, and um, I actually did most of a children's book for the RHS. That was my first, first mostly book. Um, and then I started pitching the Orchard book around, and Tim Press came back and said, oh, nice idea, not for us right now, but, you know, do keep in touch. It's, you know, I really like your son. I'm like, oh, what lovely people. Oh, they're nice. And then about a fortnight later, I got a message on the phone going, um, just wondered if you'd like to write a book on snowdrops. You had one on your business card. And I was like, you're right, I did. Because I was sort of running around snowdrop gardens by this point going, oh, that's interesting. Oh, who are you? <laughs> um, and generally kind of, I suppose informing myself, I tend to get into stuff and then pursue it madly. Um, and then it sort of forms a great big 
it's a heap of handy information. I don't, I don't tend to put things down again, um, but I do pick a lot of things up. And if I get really into them, there's kind of a long standing interest. And there's always something more to find out and some other lovely specialist to chat to. Um, so in terms of the Snowdrop book, which was the first one with the first sort of sole a project that was published, Tim Press rang me and said, we've got this series. Um, you seem to be somebody who likes snowdrops and you can clearly write. So how about it? And once again, I was like, I don't mind if I do. Thank you very much. That would be lovely. Um, and then just sort of took it from there, powering forwards. So how long does it take to put it together? Because these are hefty tomes that you write. They are quite hefty. Um, so snowdrops, I mean, sort of, it's a little bit like Chelsea Flower Show. So you start off thinking about it as sort of 18 months or two years in advance. And then, you know, these things don't sort of just drop out of the sky. And sometimes they go, okay, brilliant. Now we've got round to deciding we really want it. Five months. Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, you have a decent run in of about a year. And there's a year between my current titles. Uh, and then um, there can be sort of, and, and then you have to think about when they're going to be released. But each, each publisher varies enormously in their strategy and how they want to go about things and how they want to promote and distribute and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I mean a book is at least a year as a project, and um, sometimes considerably more. And if it's less, then you really need to get a wriggle on. <laughs> yeah. uh, we always talk about plants being associated with people and memories when you've got so many plants in your books have you ended up acquiring lots of snowdrops or hydrangeas or whatever along the way in your garden that you then sort of look at and remember the process of putting a book together yes but worse than that you end up with a whole load of things that you didn't put in your book and you wished you had <laughs> part two Part two, yes, the revision. Yeah. So yes, you, 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 it hits the shelves and you go out and you talk about it and you find out new things like, oh, that one was good. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's, it's, it's guaranteed that as soon as you're finished, somebody will tell you something really amazing you definitely needed to know about six months ago. This is the rules. <laughs> Oh, well, it happens with the podcast, and particularly when we do a special, you know, a dahlia or a alpines, snowdrops, sweet peas, whatever it is, you get to the edit and you think, why didn't we mention this one and this one and this one and this thing and this tip? You know, it's, I suppose it's um, it's inevitable. Maybe we're just all perfectionists. But talking of, uh, of plants, um, obviously that's the be all and end all on this podcast. And I know that you've been gathering bits and bobs to show us aside from Naomi Slade, the snowdrop. Uh, so, um, so what other things did you bring along for show and tell? Well, where to begin really? Um... Oh, I do love it when a guest looks around. Where <laughs> to begin? <laughs> where to begin? Well, the thing is, is that my current garden's really small tiny it's 30 feet including the deck by 18 um, and it's properly awkward so I've got a series on it in garden news in which I tell people that that you know don't worry if your plants die mine die too essentially plus you can have a lovely lifestyle um, <laughs> but so I've gone around and it's very much kind of what I've got what I do try and do for this time of year what I'm into so when I set up this garden there was nothing in it at all apart from fake grass and a couple of borders which fake grass bit got ripped up pretty promptly um 
And then what I wanted was something where I can grow my own, where I can cut flowers, where it's got structure all year round. There's colour, there's wildlife, there's all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. There's lifestyle, certainly. So, I mean, I've been here, what, about four years now, and I've been kind of building up this, this sort of world of world of plants. And so I've got some of all the things that I do, if that makes sense. Yes, we love so it. Where, where to begin? I also love a guest with a small garden because I'm always flying the small garden flag. And obviously Alan's over there with 32 acres. So we don't talk about that. <laughs> well, it's a different challenge. With 32 acres, you do take, take a lifetime to fill. Or if you're me, yeah. you go down to Wales and plant apple trees. Um, so I have very big gardening, which I do in Wales. I've got very small gardening, which I do in Bristol. Um, so I do. But like I said, I'm very into apples. I'm very into fruit. I've done a whole orchard book. What, one of the first things that I did is um, I planted crab apples. Now, not all crab apples are equal. And this is my favorite crab apple, which is Melis extrobuster red sentinel, which is very, very good. It's small, it's compact, it's lovely. Um, it has the best bright red fruit. These ones are quite early because one of the things I have is heavy shade. So about two two weeks ago, the sun went out on my garden. It's not going to be back till the end of February. So anything that needs some light to ripen is going to take a while to get there. Um, and it is absolutely beautiful. This will fruit through until late February, March. Uh, they don't tend to get eaten. Um, so for the very best crab apple on the planet is this one. Um, but this one is um, Melus red obelisk which is tall and columnar, but it's, it's brilliant on the one hand because it's tall, it's got these lovely sort of bronze leaves and it's vertical, but it crops very, very early and very, very heavily. So you end up with these big, long vertical branches that flop around like nobody's business. It goes like that, go, and you cut the ends off and then it shoots back up again and does it again. And then you get these beautiful, really, really rich, deep um, red, berries, fruits, apples, but they don't last very long. So you, they, they, they colour early and they fruit early and they fruit heavily, but they start to deteriorate very quickly. But then you go, well, that's a stupid tree, I wish I hadn't planted that one. Um, but then you go, but then they're viviparous. So the cool thing about that is they're still on the tree and the pips sprout and you get little pips coming out of the berries, out of the fruits. Um, so in addition to my tiny meeting garden, my five pear trees, my three peach trees and my some apple trees, um, I've got this viviparous crab apple. Oh, wow. Again, we don't talk about that enough on the podcast. I think you're the only second person ever in 67 episodes to mention viviparry. <laughs> yes, but it's cool, isn't it? It's very cool. <laughs> I think wasn't the last time, Alan, with our young propagators. It was indeed. Yes, it was. Um, You're yes, a good had, company. Yeah, they had this very strange cactus, didn't they? That, that, that you opened up the seeds and the babies were all growing. It, it, it's, it's just astonishing. I mean, I kind of have to go around to weed, weed out the seedlings, but um, it's, it's, and it's, it doesn't have that long lasting quality. It's got all the structure and it's a lovely colour. And you think, well, it'd be really nice if that could just sort of last for Christmas. And it doesn't. On the other hand, it does produce babies from its fruit while, while still on the tree. So. <laughs> <laughs> gives with one hand you know takes with the other it's uh, it's all a balance well that's wonderful nice autumn berries you obviously have a lot of crab apples at east rust and allen your car park has lots doesn't it yes the best one is red sentinel it is <laughs> it is <laughs> what did i say 
I've mooted that for years because if anybody says, uh, ask me a question of, you know, the best sort of tree for a small garden, I said, well, you, you get two seasons at it, really. Um, the leaves don't colour very much in the autumn, but you, the fruit lasts, as you say, Naomi, so well. Um, such a long season, but you do get a fortnight of little apple blossom as well in spring. And they are beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So yeah. again, with, with the fruit trees, I like to have them because, you know, if you've got, if you've got crab apples, they, the, part of their point is they're good pollinators and they're very floriferous. So you can cut those and you can bring them inside with things like tulips in the spring as well. So you can delay your pruning until they're all in flower. You can get as much out of your little garden as possible. <laughs> That's absolutely right, because I remember we had apples on the farm where I grew up. And when they were pruned, we, we used to bring the branches into, I don't know, something like the dairy or whatever it was. It wasn't that warm, but you'd bring the branches in, put them in water, and then you'd take branches out for the house and they would bloom inside your house. And when they're finished, you chuck them away and get another lot. So Precisely, it, it, yes. Yeah, so I do good. believe in getting as much as possible out of my garden. Absolutely, yes. All about excellent value. What yes. have you got next then, Naomi? Well, I got, well we're still on, on, on the edibles, so um, I'm a big fan of chilies. I like growing chilies. So when I said I wanted to grow my own, I really do. So I've got a little tiny greenhouse, and this one is Trinidad perfume. So I've just brought them inside, and I cheat, and I don't cut them back over winter. I just treat them as house plants. So I've got this one because it's looking particularly healthy. But what I really like is um, the purple leaved and purple flowered ones because chilies are just so beautiful. This one's Andorno. I don't know if you can see, look, isn't that absolutely lush? It is. <laughs> Such so, gorgeous uh, little flowers. Gorgeous little flowers. And they've got tiny weenies. They ever find a, they're the, well, the world's smallest chilies. They're quite spicy. Um, and I've got lots of other chilies. I've got Serrano and Cayenne and other things. Um, and when I end up with loads of those, I chop them all off and I pickle them into jars so I can have them on and burritos and things. So it's like, there's enough, enough chilies to preserve my own. Um, and so we are still on things that you shouldn't be able to necessarily grow very effectively in um, very small, extremely shaded northern spaces. Got for Salis. Got Yeah. Which is, which is marvellous. Now, I got some of these from Libera, sort of just to try a whole range of different ones because they're beautiful, aren't they? So there's the ornamental ones. And then um, I got a whole range because they tasted, tasted really, really good. But um, Father Christmas goes big on fruit in this, on this household. So my daughter got um, Fisalis in her Christmas stocking. Some people get pineapples, some people get melons, she got Fisalis. And she was like, this is nice. And she, Can I grow the seeds? So she dried out the seeds and about six months later, she planted them. And we have now basically got a Fisalis forest. <laughs> um, and they grow and they grow and they've gone through the winter just about and then they grow and then they break off because they're quite delicate. Um, and then you go, oh, that's a bit sad, isn't it? I wonder what will happen if I stick it back in the pot. And it grows and it grows. And I put on Instagram a picture of Fisalis quite recently and uh, Lots and lots of people went, that's brilliant. We've got that around here from all over the world, people I didn't know. And what I discovered from this is that I knew, obviously, there were different sorts of Fisalis because I ordered some. Um, but different forms of edible ones from, you know, Asia and Africa and America. And all these people going, oh, yeah, we've got that. It's this one. It's like, well, it's not exactly that one, but it's very close. Um, so that was a very interesting sort of journey in plants that I wasn't really expecting. That is the wonderful thing about social media is uh, and also 
I now follow people on the other side of the world and you see, you know, in November, daffodils and, and all of these things that are so incongruous to our gardening season, but it's actually quite nice to see them and to sort of think about, and hello to all of our gardeners who are in a completely different hemisphere um, watching this, uh, kind of out of kilter, but yet all having the same experiences, just at a different time. It's nice to see some things that are jolly, isn't it? Oh yeah. <laughs> It certainly is. Um, so it sounds like your your family have all caught the gardening bug as well. It's all been sort of passed down. Well, yes. I mean, it, in some ways it's, I don't know, I, I think non-optional is quite, quite true. But the, but the point is we do lots of things as a family. So when we set out apple pruning, you know, if you've got children, you send them up the tree with a secateur, tell them not to fall out and chop that bit, that bit and that bit. <laughs> Much more effective than trying to move a long ladder around. <laughs> you know, and there's cacti and there's chilies, you know, and there's offspring with really bright, warm bedrooms and which were excellent for winter things, <laughs> which was where Fasalis and chilies and, you know, um, all sorts of things go. So, um, yeah, it, it is it is a it's a it's an obsession that I'm very happy to share. Put it that way. <laughs> oh, I love it. A family endeavour. So you started with the edibles. Yes. Um, I'm getting the idea that you are quite a spicy eater from some of that. I'm spicy always, baby. Um, <laughs> yes, no, I do like spicy things, but I do like my pickles to be, to be vinegar pickles rather than salt pickles. So I think that was all the edibles we've got. So the next thing there are, so like I said, very awkward garden, north facing, chilli, very dank. So what do I grow? I grow lots of succulents. <laughs> <laughs> but I do slightly cheat. So we've got things like Aeoniums and so I've got, a, it's basically north-south facing. So I've got a very, very hot, very, very dry front windowsill. And I've got a garden that get, heats up like nobody's business in summer, then ends up pretty swampy through the entire winter. So I sort of divide things up. So I've got um, over, over winter, some things in the greenhouse, some things indoors and some things on the front windowsill. And actually the only, the, Aeoniums on the front windowsill do very much better than the ones even in the greenhouse because it's dry, because it's bright and they lose their colour, as you'll both know, if you mm. leave them in the shade for too long. Um, and then if they get really, really big, I mean, vine weevil is the real problem, of course. Um, but if they get really, really big, then they don't do, do so well with any form of moisture. The bigger they get, the, the drier, essentially, I've found you need them to be in order to uh, withstand any cold and any sort of manky weather. So um, I, I cheat all sorts of things in my garden by moving things around or moving them inside. Um, so I, I, I like succulents. I do. So there's this one, there's lovely, I know I tend to go to press days and they're small, they fit in press packs so people give them to me. So that's where that one came from as well. And that's an echeveria? Yes, that's left. It's the, it's the, it's the um, slightly purple variety. Yeah, um, lovely. It is beautiful. And interestingly, I find that the bright blue green glaucus varieties overwinter far better in my far from adequate uh, situations than the purple ones. So this one lives indoors most of the time. He looks nice. There's someone in our local town, they have a flower shop and outside the flower shop, they have two breeze blocks, you know, the kind of breeze blocks with the uh, open centers in them. And they've had the, the glaucous variety of Echeveria has been there now for about four years. And yeah. it lives outside the whole time. And I think the reason is because it is so dry. 
And of course, the breeze block will wick the water away as well, so that'll help keep it extra dry. So actually, yeah. keeping things extra dry is the um, is the challenge. Yes, it is. It's the challenge, but it's also the key to plants withstanding um, our winter cold. Because the one <laughs> thing that plants do not like is the combination of wet and cold. You can be as cold as you like if I've got dry feet. Absolutely, and that's the case with the echeverias, with the dahlias, with the lilies. Um, as long as you can keep them with all that drainage. That's why I've got yeah. an awful lot of things in pots, because I want, I'm on heavy heavy clay um, in a rather dank corner at the back of the house, certainly over yeah. the winter. No, mm. There's no sunshine at all for, for a couple of months. Um, but also, you know, I mean this, which I believe is the crassula, um, but it came unlabeled again. I went to the RHS press day. I think Chelsea. that's Helen Coey. Is it? I believe it is because there we had something very similar that we bought in and it came from abroad and it was Cal and Coe and they called it Flapjack. Well, I was trying to work out what it was because I'd never really bothered before because it turned up and it was free. Um, <laughs> but obviously I cared so much that I brought it back from London in my RHS press pack um, and I put it in a corner and then I realised I was going on holiday. So I came back a fortnight later and um, it was still underneath my desk. I thought, <laughs> not. Oops. Um, so I potted it up and it was about this big two years ago and it has just gone warmth. Yes. So whatever it is that I'm doing and my brutal cruelty to my plants, it's uh, obviously enjoying it. <laughs> well, it's very difficult to kill a plant because they really do want to live. They do. And also, as you've said before, Alan, you know, the, the problem with having them in the house uh, is you sometimes, you know, open a curtain and whack a bit off. <laughs> it just yeah. falls, falls off. But then you could just stick it back in and uh, and the way we go. Yes. Exactly. You end up with an awful lot of plants that way, though. <laughs> That's the one problem, because I've been decapitating lots of my aeoniums and, and to some extent some echeverias that have just grown too. They get a woody trunk on them. Um, there's an echeveria called Mauna Loa, named after a, a Hawaiian volcano. Um, and it, its leaves become glaucous blue and then they become red and then they become fiery orange and all sorts of things and it has these viper-like flower stems yeah yeah and they superb and go everywhere so well, if, got, I, if i like I've spicy been... things do you like all your things named after volcanoes <laughs> <laughs> i'm a bit feisty <laughs> <laughs> have you got things called etna and uh, vesuvius and... <laughs> yeah we should have shouldn't i um no i've just been chopping the heads off and i i've chopped them all down they've been um in seed trays drying off for about two weeks and they're about to be planted but you're absolutely right when you say then you get masses of plants because you think well what the hell do i do with all of these give one to me i'll have one yeah no totally we have a plant sales area fortunately so we can feed for that (laughs) you know what thordis i think that's a no yeah (laughs) (laughs) mona lower is, is pretty fantastic um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, it's wonderful when you watch Echeverias. I'm dreadful at letting them sort of snake. You know, I don't turn them all the time and sort of keep them upright. So they, they quite often end up with these snaking stems. And then you see all these little kind of adventitious roots coming out. I assume that's yeah. what they are. And yeah. you, you can kind of see the magic of how it will root fairly readily if you do chop a bit off and, and stick it in some soil. It's such a clever plant. It is. And they also produce little babies out the bottom if you just leave them be, because I've, I've got one which is currently doing that. It's planted a teacup on my bathroom window. So it's kind of going sideways because it really does like all the sunlight in the world. Um, but it's got little babies coming up at the bottom. It's going out sideways. And uh, that's all right. 
Yeah, they're good fun. Um, so I, I think there are people who don't, I mean, I'm probably one of them who don't really grow aeoniums at the moment, though I, I've been considering it for next year because I worry that when I bring them in, I will probably kill them over the winter. So is your regime just the, the dryness? Is that over winter your kind of main tip? Uh, that's my overwintering tip with pretty much everything. Um, I wet will kill things well in advance of, um, of, of of drought. And the plant, you know, if you keep an eye on your plants, they'll tell you if they want a little bit of water. You know, the leaves get a little bit dull. There's just a little sort of, sort of dip in, in, their, in their general cheerfulness. They'll start looking at you in a pleading fashion and go, just a little bit of water, just a little bit. Um, I mean, doing dahlias over winter um, indoors, they can dry out. Um, so I tend to actually leave them potted up and stick them in the greenhouse, but keeping them completely dry uh, does seem to be the way forward. Brilliant. Well, I feel encouraged. Next year can be more aeoniums in my life and I could do the shuffle. I think that is the key with a small garden, isn't it? It's about moving things around and it's sort of being strategic. It really is. It really is. I've got a little alpine bed, which is, is in pretty heavy shade. So I make that, I put things in it, which sort of look smart and then when they've done their thing I go and put them out the front so they can go to recover in the sunlight. <laughs> Great idea we can have alpine troughs in the shade. Um, what, what do you have next Naomi? I'm loving your show next? and tell. Well I'm moving, I'm moving on to shrubs. This is my sort of autumn, winter, summer, I don't know, it's, it's everything really. So I find this uh, Sambucus black lace is a very snazzy background shrub because it goes with everything, absolutely everything. It, it actually pollards very well as well. We, yes. we have it we have it in the centre of a bed outside our office and um, there's four plants in each bed and we cut them hard back um, each year, which means we get very few flowers. But when the new growth starts, it comes up very, very vigorously. And yes. when it gets to about... 45 centimetres tall we pinch the tips out and it just makes this wonderful ferny bush of brown foliage it's lovely sounds wonderful and what I do with mine is I cut out everything that flops sideways I cut it out and, and I yeah. leg it up so it's actually quite sort of tall and narrow I mean it's sort of yeah. quite columnar um, and in front of it I've got um, now this is a hydrangea I inherited which says it's Marisei perfecta and it's a sort of a, a pinky slightly mauve thing um, which goes absolutely wonderful in the summer with the with the black lace, and then in front of it over winter, I've got um, Cornus alba, and this one is Baton Rouge, which I cut back very hard. And everything in my garden is quite new, other than the absolutely wadging um, rose Madame Alfred Carrière, which is absolutely humongous. Everything is uh, four years old or less. So I like things that go, go big and then are very manageable from that point. So when this has really got going, I'll, I'll pollard it every spring so I get those really bright shoots. So my garden at the moment is this nice combination of these sort of buttery yellow leaves and lots of other sort of yellow things going on. The really nice red oh. crab apples. And the Sambucus actually has most of its leaves on still. So it's a beautiful inky backdrop. And it's nice with the with the carrier roses on as well, Madame Alfred Carrier. Um, so this is a, I mean, I put them in most gardens that I ever I ever plant. These these two things because they're just wonderful. This is a wonderful backdrop for basically everything on the planet. This gives you the best 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 red colour. Um, you can plant snowdrops underneath it and cyclamen and crocuses and many other good things. And then. 
you don't risk digging them up because you've got them next to something big and lovely in the summer. And you've got this really brilliant hit of, of, of red colour in winter. I've only snipped off a little bit for you. Oh. But it really is an excellent, true scarlet. It's lovely. Mm. I do love a coolness. Yeah, the, oh, oh. <laughs> Golden buttery yellow leaves. They are absolutely beautiful. And then I've got things that smell nice as well. So... <laughs> Um, snowdrops smell wonderful, as you both probably know. So very many snowdrops have got a gorgeous scent on them. Um, and I've got this Vernon Bodden Intensity that I inherited, probably Dawn, which smells wonderful. And it, I was walking out my front garden the other day and I was like, something smells nice. This is the wrong time for things to smell nice. What could it be? But it, will, it genuinely will flower from now until April, on and off. You know, you'll get a bit of frost or, you know, some bad weather and all the, all the flowers will go... Um, sort of a little bit brown and miserable and they're much less good on Instagram but <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it, sort of hunt, hunt the Instagram thing today um, but actually even so they smell absolutely delightful so I like to have lots of lovely scented things in the garden as well. I think that's so important to have scent, scent in your garden um, and if possible I would always urge people to try and plant scent close to your back or front door so that you see it, you meet it or it meets you because I think it's it's just a, a, an important element in the garden. I agree and do yeah. you know what sometimes if you walk around the um around the streets and it's getting dark you can almost navigate by scent because you know somebody's might have a mahonia and someone you, you've got a viburnum and so you can tell where you're on the street even if it's quite quite dark just because you can you can smell the shrubs that are in a flower so I, I always it's an olfactory map making <laughs> you can you can also plant scented things where you're going to open a window as well yes. because that's that's rather lovely. I mean, who doesn't like the waft that you get from good old-fashioned wallflowers? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think they're lovely. Wallflowers, lilacs, viburnum, yeah. you know, roses. And the wonderful thing, actually, of, of having a small garden, and it, mine, it's, it's down, so it drops down from the house. But I have got quite a lot of small roses in them. I mean, it's the sort of garden where you've kind of got, everything's got to kind of fight for its way to the light. So things that are really small tend to, unless they're bulbs, tend, tend to sort of, like you get overwhelmed after a while but you can get still days in summer when the all the scent from the roses has sort of pooled in the garden and mm. you're walking you're walking through a sort of this beautiful mist of, 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 of rose scent have we exhausted your show and tell yet Naomi not quite <laughs> not quite well, you did say yes <laughs> the more the merrier what I've got now is this is another hydrangea obviously I used to hate them I did. I used to not like them at all. My grandmother had some big sort of bushes and they called them Queen Mother's Hats. And they're sort of, sort of muddy brownish colour. But this one is called Skyfall. And it's a little diddy new one. It's not in my book because I discovered it afterwards, as you do. Um, but it's a small paniculata variety and it's this beautiful lime green. The panicles last for absolutely ages. But the point about this is it's very, very keen. So it, it had a branch and it fell over. It thought, put down some roots then, shall I? So it's, it's, it's kind of help. I'm, I'm an almost obsessive propagator. If it falls off, I'm a great stick it in the pot, stick it in the ground, turn it into a cutting. And look at those seeds. I'll see if I can grow those. Um, but Skyfall is actually trying trying to literally take cuttings for itself. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of this. And... But you can do the same with things like cyclamen. 
so cyclamen when they go over they will, will very happily sell seed all over the place so again you think well you know where do I want those well probably not there so scatter it just I, all I did was chuck it on the top of a pot and now lots and lots of baby cyclamen which I'm not completely sure what I'm going to do with <laughs> but I have baby cyclamen it's always best to have them is that a little garden cyclamen uh, yes it's just a little, little heterofolium yeah well their seeds often go walk about thanks to the attention of ants yeah. Because ants love the sugary coating on the seeds. So they take them, they take the seeds off and they eat them or take off the sugary coating and they leave them wherever they are. And that's why they sort of kind of go walk about. And snowdrops um, are also distributed by ants as well. Exactly. So there's something called an iliosome. Hang on, let me see if I've got. Should we see if this works, kids? So <laughs> why not? So snowdrops have got an eliosome, um, like, um, like an oil. Um, which is a fatty little dewberry on the end of its seeds. And I don't know if this has got seeds or not because I wasn't expecting to have to do this demonstration. It did have last year. And the ants like it because it's a nice food source. And there is actually a picture of, I think, ants and snowdrop seeds, which wasn't taken by me. I don't think we've got any, sadly. Um, but, but they've got this little sort of oily tail and the ants think this is a lovely food source and they go, oh, brilliant, I'll pick that up. And they sort of scamper them around the garden and they eat the thing and then they drop the seed and the snow goes tar very much. I'll grow here then, nice long way away from the parent colony. That is so clever. But again, a part of, part of my obsession is that if I buy snowdrops and they're in flower, that they've come from somebody else's nursery. And some of the, I mean, because some snowdrops, particularly the double ones, are infertile, so they don't set seed. But if they do set seed, and I discover that I've got seeds or flowers that are going over on a snowdrop I've bought, and I was like, oh, look, I have seeds here. And I have absolutely no idea who the pollination partner is. And they come from a huge nursery who have loads of snowdrops. So I very often pull the little seeds out, wait till they're ripe and then plant them. And it's going to take five years or more to find out what my baby snowdrop's going to look like. But, um, you know, propagate, going to propagate. <laughs> I'm super impressed because I'm always struggling with my small plot. And it sounds like you have just managed to maximise every single <laughs> centimetre of your space. I don't have tidy on my side, but yes, it <laughs> I've got interesting. <laughs> I love a greenhouse when it's packed to the gunnels. Even when it's mine, it's packed to the gunnels. And I, I discover things that I've forgotten, plants that I've forgotten that, that, that are growing away. And part of that is my flow mode today as well, actually. But we'll come to that in a bit. We will. Well, I forgot something else. I, I grew lemongrass um, in, my, in my greenhouse. Um, it, it only likes the greenhouse, everything else is too dank and miserable for it. But I went and bought a bit from the supermarket and stuck it in a pot to see if it would work. So I've got a nice little thriving lemongrass thing. And that really, really does not like wet, just to, you know, as a tip, but uh, it works. <laughs> I feel like we should revisit hydrangeas because, Alan, at your garden, you've got so many wonderful hydrangeas. And we, for some reason, in all the episodes, I don't think we've talked that much about hydrangeas at all, maybe once or twice with Creek, but they are obviously abundantly you know various there are all kinds of different ones and you have lots of them I do but I mean it's it's very strange because there seems to be um a superfluous amount of introduced every year um and I have to say that some of the mop heads for, for my taste are becoming um what else can they do to them I mean <laughs> you get you get a big mop head with purple flowers and a green edge to the petal or a green eye to the petal. Um, and it seems to be doing it because they can, you know, they're breeding these things because they can. And one of my favorites, I mean, there's two that stick in my mind. 
One is a white-flowered mop head, which is an old mop head called Madame Emile Moliere. And Madame Emile Moliere has um, a trait, and that trait is that ble it blooms on its new wood as well as its old wood, uh, which was important years ago, because years ago when our winters were much harsher, quite often you'd leave a hydrangea outside throughout the winter and the, the frost would kill the buds in the, in the new shoots. But Madame Emile Moliere would oblige later in the year with another crop of, of flowers. And we have Madame Emile Moliere here. I've got one tied to a wall just outside that window. Um, and it's flowers, it's in complete shade, not overhead shade, but facing north, doesn't get any sun at all. The flowers fade to green, this lovely lime green. They go pink oh. as well a bit sometimes, but that lime green is so lovely. And I could go and pick that for, to bring in the house at Christmas time, which I think is lovely. My other hydrangea is a very strange thing. It has flowers that are individual flowers that are shaped like a lilac. Naomi, you will know immediately which one it is. Asia, yes. Yeah, Asia. And that does very strange things on my soil. If we get too much, I've got a neutral pH here, which enables me to go either acid or alkaline. It's much more difficult to go acid than it is to go alkaline. But where it grows in little pockets of acid soil, its flowers are much smaller, but they're brilliant, brilliant purple. Normally, it, it's this sort of kind of, I suppose, nicker pink, really. <laughs> Frilly nicker pink, probably my least favourite hydrangea colour. I, I, like, I like whites and blues and, and, and all the lovely greens. Yeah. Right. Antiquing. Antiquing is really a, a really important element of, of hydrangea's interest, isn't it? Because yes. they have these phases and it lasts forever. Yes, it does. I've just taken one out by my potting shed. I put uh, a large growing lace cap called Zorro and Zorro has black stems, mm. but it dies disgracefully. <laughs> and it got so big I just said to somebody the other day just get rid of that well we haven't got rid of it yet but we've cut it back so in the winter or early spring whenever we will move it to somewhere in the woodland garden where I haven't got to look at it every day um, <laughs> but but no I mean hydrangeas are very very rewarding the only thing is for us of course we're very dry our water table is 19 and a half feet below the surface. It's a light sandy loam. It's very free draining. So we do have to irrigate hydrangeas. And yes, so we have I expect yeah, so. Yeah, we uh, have did you mostly grow um lace caps? Macrophyllas? That's the one I'm after. Yes, yes. Macrophyllas, <laughs> the ones that because uh, no, no, they have no, this we... kind of they have this sort of ser series of, of liking of, of different conditions. And macrophyllas like the ones who like the ones that would like most water. By the yeah. time you get to quercifolias, you want um yeah. you want good drainage. And I like those you get good autumn colour. Quercifolia because they're called that because they have leaves that resemble an oak leaf. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely right. I get the best colour from quirky folias where they're grown in full sunlight. Yeah. Um, I've got a double one called Snowflake, which is outside my Pelagonium house, which has got them. I mean, it's not bright scarlet, but there are shades of purple and a bit of yellow in there. And uh, I, I mean, it's lovely autumn, but shall I say discreet autumn colour um, at the moment. Yes, no, I like the quercifolias. I like the autumn colour. I like I like that extra extra detail on the leaves. They're not just sort of straight and sort of round and pointy. No. Um, I mean, macrophyllas are all right, but I have to say, I have, I, I like, you know, um, I like climbing hydrangeas. I like the ones with sort of lovely downy leaves. Um, I have the misfortune to live in an alkaline soil area, so an awful lot of the uh, hydrangeas around here are pink, yeah, um, or shades of pink. 
Um, so I love it when I see a blue one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exciting, isn't it? This, there's two new ones, I think, new climbing hydrangeas, hydrangea petiolaris. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. We've got one with cream variegated edge to the leaf and one with a golden variegated edge to the leaf. They're relatively new. They haven't flowered yet, but they will do. And I think they're going to be pretty spectacular. I look forward to pictures. And don't, don't forget the other thing that climbing hydrangeas, hydrangea petiolaris has, and that is this lovely peeling rufous coloured bark. And in the winter, mm. the sun shining on it, that looks absolutely divine. It's a seasonal thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, you can go through the seasons um, and not many hydrangeas have a great deal of interest in the winter. Well, they, they, they do if you leave the, the, um, the, the seed heads well, on, the flower heads on. I'm not to a point. I mean, I've seen them beautiful with, you know, um, hellebores and snowdrops underneath, you know, because you can really use them to layer up. Um, that's right. But I think that's when you say the macrophyllas, they're a bit in your face, I have to admit. They're rather blousy, a little bit vulgar, and you really have to use them as part of your palette and surround them with other things so that they don't, to lessen the blobby effect, I think, because otherwise <laughs> they can become very blobby. Um, they can become really blobby, yes. yes. I, mean, I, I do like, I like, I like the lace caps, I like the airy ones, I like the, I like the gentle colours. I'm not a kind of in-your-face hydrangea lover, I will admit, even to this day. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the most beautiful ones in the garden here that have self-seeded are varieties of the hydrangea villosa aspira. Lovely. I really then, like that one. Yeah, but long, velvety, dark green leaves, almost good enough just to grow for the foliage. But, you know, they, they have the lace cap type flowers in varying shades of mauve and purple, and they are absolutely stunning. But they've got their big garden plants, I have to say. They do, I think, I think for the slave. Um, garden, they would be a little bit too large, possibly. Well, but, but there's one in there's one in the front garden around the corner from me, mm. and I look at it with 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 admiration and lust every time I pass. <laughs> and it, you know, it would probably take up a quarter of my garden. So it's yeah. not really. I'm, I'm tempted to knock on the door and ask for a cutting. Even so, do that and take it to Wales. I would have to take it to Wales. Yes. Yes, yeah. um, but it's beautiful it's soft and it's downy and it's got these gorgeous flowers and it's just yeah. lovely yeah well talking of hydrangea cuttings the excitement in my life is I have two baby hydrangeas one was sent in by the lovely gardens with dogs on Instagram who gave it to me as a gift and uh, just a little baby one so I've never met it properly I've never seen it flower but that's lovely and I bought one at Alan's plant fair last year um, like a, a one pound jobby from a little plant society. It might've been the Hardy Plant Society. So I'm, I'm in great excitement every year and kind of watching them, waiting to see what they turn into because they're mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. But they are also small, which is handy at the moment. They may grow big eventually, but they fit in my garden at the moment. Have we exhausted your uh, show and tell now? I think you may have done, unless uh, you want to have me, send me out and run around and pick up a few more things. But I've got everything that I've got around me. Don't tempt me, Naomi. I would do that. <laughs> you look tucked up nicely in the warmth. And also, we have been chatting for ages, so I suppose we should uh, come on to some Flomo, particularly as Alan's tempted us with uh, the fact that he got inspired by his, his full greenhouse. Um, my Flomo comes, I think... I don't know when you posted it, but much earlier in the year, Naomi, you um, posted a tulip, uh, a species tulip, a cuminata, which I wish I had. And I'm now wishing I'd ordered because I haven't got any again. But that that was fabulous. And I, I feel like you were quite pleased with it when you posted the photo. I only post photos and things I'm really pleased with. <laughs> 
no, I do. Tulipa accumulata is something that I have wanted to grow for a while, and they did so well. And I do like a species tulip, so it's um, it's cerulea ocula, is it, Alan? The, uh, yeah. the little one with yeah. the bright blue eye, and, and it's yeah. just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, you know, they're a little bit hit and miss as a, as a kind of, you know, grow in the dark swamp sort of plant, but um, they are uh, species tulips are just the best. I've just been clearing an area to plant some, and I've got um, quite a few. I can't remember them all, but there's one which Humilis, I think, is it Humilis? There's there's about four forms of it, and I bought some of each um, in the hope that they may sell seed, and we'll have sort of you know crosses between the different varieties. But they're they're one claim to fame, if you like. There's this brilliant blue centre in the middle, and they're shades of um, mauve, dark pink, purple. There's, they are quite stunning. Yeah. Lovely. I've got some pink ones to plant this year, and I've got a tulip clusiana, which has come back year yeah. on year. Yeah, that's a very good one, actually. There's one you normally see off it is clusiana cynthia, um, but there's another one called peppermint stick, um, and about four others. But you have to search for them. They're not in. Uh, they're in sort of should we say slightly more obscure bulb catalogues. <laughs> obscure, you say. <laughs> But yeah, cuminata is beautiful. It's that sort of tapered. Mm. It's like flames, isn't it? It's yeah. Like some, it's like it's on fire. Yeah. yeah. yeah Very Alan like... Gray plant. Well, yes, it is. I mean, we went to Richard Hobbs Garden earlier this year, uh, Thunder, and we looked at, uh, that's her nickname, by the way, Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, and we were looking at species tulips there, and, and Richard, I said, yes, but you won't ever find that particular one because it was given to me by somebody 25 years ago or something, whatever, um, and it's not in general commerce. So there are lots that you can't find. Um, but it, it, it's worthwhile planting them because they are one of the varieties of tulips that come back, they, they repeat flower much more regularly than some of the, the boiled eggs on sticks that are very highly bred. That is very, very true. I, I do, t I, when it comes to bulbs, I do like underbred ones, actually. Mm. Um, I do, I'm a big fan of the kind of virtually wild type flower. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, I was going to say that's a bit of an age thing, but I shouldn't say that because you're so much younger than me. But... <laughs> Thank you. Observed. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that as, when I would put it down to experience, because I think the more experienced you become, uh, with your gardening it's like your book on lilies I have to say that um, some of those very large flowered very new hybrids I have grown and I have looked at them and I've, I've marveled at them and then I've had to think but I really don't like you because your flower is as big as my head <laughs> and it is slightly too can I Extra. throw lilies a bone on this we had to shoot it in lockdown so uh, there was a it's I'm actually very proud of it, and it's it's a cracking book, and I'm really well, pleased with all the interesting, exciting things you know you can find out about lilies and all those oh. wonderful varieties, and you get them in Asia and you get them in America because the kind of the world split across that that axis. Um, some of the varieties are, are are there because we could get them, we could get photographs, and they're, and they're, they're in, in commercial thing because you know tra traveling was a challenge. But um, these are the things you do when you write a book. You come up with a Absolutely. long wish list, then you whittle it down to desirable, possible, growable, lovable, <laughs> interesting. We've lost Alan to your book now. He's just dived into it. Well, I have dived into it because I mean, you, quite often you you get varieties like Regale, which is white 
um, or African queen, which you mentioned in the book, which people don't probably grow as much as they should, I feel, because they have in the garden or in pots. I think I don't think you can ever beat the scent of regale anyway. Yes, um, and they are something to plant outside the window that you open or by your front door. Brief season, I know, by three weeks. Um, but you will enjoy that and, and anywhere that you sit out on warm evenings in June, July. Um, and I mean, I, when you when you write a book, you've got to cover everything as much as you can anyway. But well, the species to... that you mentioned, I think, are particularly interesting. Well, the species, the species are interesting. Um, and as I say, my, my personal tastes are very much mm. for species plants. Um, yeah. You know, species varieties, wild types, you know, the, the really, really highly bred ones get to the point where they're just a little bit, a bit fussy. They're kind of, you know, they, they, they're, they're very, very blingy. But fundamentally, they're treated as cut flowers or bedding, essentially. Um, yes. One of the things that I wanted to do, which again, the, the pandemic hasn't, well, it's, it's delayed rather than put paid to, is that I wanted to go and um, climb up Mount Olympus and just botanize from bottom to top and, and run around you know, um, the, the Balkans and, and, and Greece in order to look for the wild types of flowers and, you know, um, may, maybe even Turkey and Lilium chalcedonicum and, 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 you know, all sorts of other wonderful, wonderful things, you know, snowdrops and all sorts of things. And, you know, you, I've, I've heard stories of, you know, opening the window and you've got carpets of cyclamus as far as the eye can see. And I want to be there. I want to go and find out about where, where, where these wild things grow. Uh, yeah, because that's that excites me enormously. I mean, well, highly bred hydrangeas, highly bred lilies—they are glorious to look at. I mean, they are absolutely wonderful. But what excites me is the little creatures that, that are hiding away in places on the mountains or yeah. in, in, in those little cool dells. And it's like, oh, look at this wonderful creature! Uh, it's, I mean, the, the, these plants out there that exist in the wild that we don't know anything about. I mean, um, Ledwin Wynne-Jones was talking about a red-flowered climbing hydrangea that is down in Colombia. But, I mean, Colombia, they know it's there. They've tried cuttings. They've tried seeds. It didn't, neither of which worked. Um, but they know it's there, and they can't go and get it because of the hostility within that country at the moment, um, which is terribly sad in a way, but it, it will come. But this is one of the things I discovered, again, uh, when actually writing hydrangeas, is that there has been an assumption that if it exists, it's been found. We've found it, we've scrumped it, we've imported it, probably the beaches or those sorts of chaps, there isn't, it's yeah, probably yeah. queue. Um, we've bred from it, it's in our gardens, job's done, world sorted. And that's not true at all. There's mm. all sorts of hydrangeas in Colombia, South America particularly, they find new ones or new um, subspecies. Um, in Asia all the time. I mean, a lot of it unexplored is, is, is quite a thorny um, term, I think. Um, but just because we haven't been over the fine tooth comb as, as, as English horticulturists um, is, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. People don't know it's there and it's not a good plant. It might just be growing quietly or you know, the local people might go, that's a nice plant, we like that one. But just because you can't buy it in, in, in your local nursery doesn't mean that it's, if it doesn't exist, because it does. No. Yeah, exactly. So the fact the fact there's so much more to explore in the world is something else that's really exciting. It is. I mean, I've always wanted to go to Chile and, and well, South America in general. I've never been, but I think Chile has given us a huge source of plants from because it's got such a climate range from you know hot and tropical at one end to the uh, South Pole at the other almost. 
Well, there's, um, there's, there's, there's variations, there's climactic variations, and, yeah. and, and, and they, they, they drive evolution, which is brilliant. Um, but again, Chile and Peru and all those sort of places, Brazil, where a lot of the, uh, the genes came from for the new popular dwarf single dark colored dahlias you get. Mm. Um, they're all relatively recently bred. But you know, if you think, well, that's what turns up and that's what you get from a seed catalog, what would be there if I had got on a boat and, you know, <laughs> grabbed a bottle of water and a stick and went and had a look. That'd be great. <laughs> I hope you get to do Olympus. I hope that turns into a book. I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I should say, by the way, if anyone is watching this or listening for the first time, Flomo, I didn't explain it properly. I think most of you have been here for a while now, so you know kind of what Flomo is. But it's it's a feeling we get when we see a plant and we have a fear of missing out. I, you see, I want it. That's how a lot of us live our lives. Uh, Naomi, where are you at with your Flomo at the moment? Well, we've talked about hydrangea aspera, which I'd obviously like. Um, I like really big things and I like really small things. So um, I want Magnolia Campbellii. Um, I want a big one that needs to be at least 50 years old when I get it sort of thing. It's like, <laughs> am I going to have to buy like a great mansion with one already in existence? <laughs> one. But it's a beautiful, glorious, magnificent um, tree. And it's like a forest tree. There's a wonderful one at uh, Kingston Bagpew's house in uh, Oxfordshire. Um, and it's huge deep purple tulips and it's just the most glorious thing then there's another thing that i saw i think shortly after i met you at chelsea it was a form of glycorrhizae a licorice with really pretty purple flowers um, and these sort of fuzzy um lobed fruit so that was a very exciting plant um which i would like to get one off i know a chap who's got some so i think that's going to be a, a fairly rapidly sated <laughs> Oh, we love a rapidly sated Flomo. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I, I do struggle cutting my current gardening setup with big things. So I'd like to go um, stuff a gigantia and things like that. It's big, big, fat prairie things. But it's just not really practical. I don't have the drainage and I don't have the light. So, uh, you know, I have to kind of aspire, aspire and evolve. Aspiring and evolving. Um, we like that. Go on then, Alan. We've been waiting to hear what your flomo is after you teased us earlier. Well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because um, Naomi just mentioned um, uh, Magnolia Campbellii. We have um, a variety in the garden. Well, it's related to Campbellii, but it's a Campbellii type. And it's a Magnolia called Carehaze Bell. And normally you have to wait for these to flower if they're grown from seed, and that can take 50, 60, 70 years. Um, but if you go to a certain nursery called Bernkus, um, they will graft it for you. So and if you buy a grafted specimen, it's a lot more expensive than a, a, a regular plant grown from a cutting, I suppose. But if you buy a grafted specimen, I did that with Kehes Bell, I think it paid 65 pounds for it, which is probably 20 or 30 years ago. But it flowers within five years, and it, and it is flowering regularly every year since. So that is something you can bear in mind when you want, when you can afford to have your acre, your rolling acres with big trees in it, Naomi. Um, my, my personal flomo is not really a flomo because I've got the plants already, but my aim is I've been developing a small area of shady garden that is um, quite interesting. It's got lots of um, gingers in it. Um, and somebody very kindly called me up and said, um, I've just bought a house with a garden. I don't want any of the plants in it. Can you come and take them away, please? And this, 
this happened to be the garden of a very good gardener. And there was something called Astelia chatamica, um, which is a silver leaf plant, like a silver, a bit like a silver leaf formium, I suppose. But unlike most silver leaf plants, it is a shade lover. And I've got that in there. And it has green flowers right very low at the base um, and big crops of orange berries in late summer and autumn. So they're there at the moment. But I, I, there's two um, busy lizards that I would like to have increased. Um, <laughs> these are uh, uh, slightly just um, or not out of the ordinary, I suppose. A variety called Impatiens or Impatiens sardinii. Um, there's three forms of it, a plain white flower impatience, a plain mauve, pale mauve flower, and one called flash, which is white with a red dash on the petals, a cherry red dash on the petals. Now, these are big growing plants. They're sort of four, five footers. Um, so they can actually grow quite large. And I'd like to put a glade of those through there. And another impatience I've got is one called flanaganii. Now, Flanaganii is, it should be hardy if you're relatively mild. It makes the most whopping great tuber under the ground. In actual fact, it can make tubers up its stems, which is, which is not a pretty sight in actual fact, because it looks as if it's got some terrible, terrible disease. <laughs> but you can pull them off and push them into the ground and they'll root, like you. I'm an inveterate taker of cuttings. <laughs> and it has the most marvellous pink, um, Shrieking Schiaparelli pink, I think you call it, flowers, but it holds on a long stem and they're slightly hooded. Um, and it just is one of those plants that you look at and say, my God, what the hell is that? It looks, <laughs> it looks a bit like a pink triffid, I suppose. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. He's a, he's a grower and a propagator. And he said, um, I've mentioned Flanaganii, impatience Flanaganii. I said, I've taken a few cuttings. I haven't got much to take cuttings of. He said, do you want to try a bit? <laughs> so next year I'm set up with, I don't know, 20 or 30 plants, I suppose, to make my grove. Uh, so that's two impatience Flanaganii and Sardinii. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. I, I just love the idea of planting a grove. Oh, <laughs> green sentences right there. <laughs> I, I have had some, some success with something else, actually, because... I don't know whether you remember the old uh, impatience or busy Lizzie, as it was known, as that was the house plant. Everybody had it. It had the most shrieking pink flowers. But my grandma used to line it out as a hedge in her garden, and we'd have a thunderstorm and it'd get bashed down to the ground. Three weeks later, it, it mended itself. I mean, it just grew so lush. Um, didn't see it anywhere for years and years and years. And I managed to locate a cater plant last year. And I grow it purely probably, I suppose, for cement, sentimental reasons. I don't know. But it's sitting in the orangery now and it's covered in flowers. So there we are. I was pleased about that. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone needs to go and follow East Ruston Old Vicarage on Instagram because Alan has gone crazy taking photos. So both Alan and East Ruston, just full of wonderful seasonal inspiration can I, can at the moment. I, can I tell the reason why? Yes. <laughs> well, I was um, opening a garden here for the National Garden Scheme and somebody sent me an email. This is in October. And somebody sent me an email and said, well, is there anything to see in your garden in October? <laughs> I'm afraid I'd rather let loose at them. I wasn't rude. Well, they probably thought I was. Did you and have I, a sense of humour <laughs> failure, Alan? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> anyway. to see in my garden <laughs> as I live and breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, there's just so much in the garden that's still it's still in flower at the moment. And here we are, you know, well into November. So um, 
people don't understand there's much more to a garden than just the flowers that are grown within it. I mean, you know, there's the thick leaf bark and berry for a start. Um, there are three things that people should look at a little bit more, I think. Um, and, you know, the shapes, think of the feeling, think of the architecture within that garden. Look at the, the way a path moves and curves around. I mean, it makes it makes so much sense just being and enjoying. Never mind the flowers. <laughs> well, I, I love to look at a garden in autumn or winter because there's nowhere to hide. Exactly. I really like, I, I, you know, you, you can, I like garden visiting in winter because you can really tell whether it's, whether it's a good garden, whether it's a garden that's full of puff. And, yes. and, you know, and, 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 and <laughs> you know. But I know what you mean. I love going to Alan's garden in sort of darkest winter and you can really see the structure. I don't think gardens like Heligan that are known for their sort of their tropical this, that and the other. You go in and you see the lovely, um, just the geometric shapes of, of, of the of hedges in the wall garden and bare apple trees as, as an avenue or um, verticals and big thorns on things. You go, I would, I would never have noticed that at any other time of year. There's that wonderful rose, isn't there? I can't remember the name. It begins with an S, something like Seriaca, Seriaca, something like that. It has these enormous blood red thorns. Mm. But to get those, you have to prune it very hard because it's the young ones that produce the most colour. It's the same thing on your cornice with those lovely scarlet stems that you showed us. I mean, it's the young stems that produce the best colour. Um, but if you can actually see that rose with the stem of those st um, thorns on it, with a shining light coming through it. I mean, they're absolutely luminous, bright red thorns on this. I mean, hugely cruel, of course. <laughs> it's astonishing though, it's beautiful, that one. Yeah. I'll put that on my FLOMO list while I'm at it. <laughs> well, I think we've, we've all got quite a lot of FLOMO and a lot of inspiration. It is wonderful to chat to somebody who's working with a small space and triumphing in a tiny garden. Um, I'm, I'm feeling freshly inspired to go and tackle my plot. Um, Naomi, will you come back again at a different season? Seeing as you've got so much in November, I can't even imagine what you'll bring us at a different time of year. I'll come back a different time of year, of course. <laughs> a new book. Yes. <laughs> well, a new book. I'll see you in spring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Should we just talk before then? Yes, absolutely. But uh, if anybody would like my books as Christmas presents, naomislade.com forward slash shop. Like, dear so-and-so, lots of love and kisses from Naomi. So there you go. <laughs> well, that's very personal. That's lovely. Yeah. And plenty of time before Christmas. Perfectly timed for that ideal Christmas gift. A bit too big for a stocking. It's a proper under the tree gift, that one. Big stockings. <laughs> Best sort. <laughs> Oh, Naomi, until next time, thank you so much for a delightful hour and happy gardening. Happy thank gardening. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.